This is an RNZ podcast. When Stuff launched its Me Too NZ campaign in 2018, there were some predictable objections. Cartoonist Al Nisbet confusingly labelled it a witch hunt after men. At News Talk ZB, Mike Hosking spent an editorial branding the project tasteless and tacky. A lot of the Me Too campaign is not about illegal activity, serious sexual assault, things you end up in court for. It is about hearsay, rumour, innuendo, scuttlebutt, sleaze and gossip. It's about alleged pinched bums, wolf whistles and tacky one-liners. Not that any of those things are remotely acceptable. They're not crimes and they're not front-page news. His view was backed up by PR advisor Janet Wilson, who thought the situation was analogous to the Red Scare. We're getting into what used to happen in the 1950s mm. um, in America with the American, uh, the un-American activities. Oh, McCarthyism, yeah. the Reds under the bed thing. It later emerged that Wilson was acting as an advisor to the law firm Russell McVeigh, embroiled in its own sexual misconduct scandal. But were these commentators' fears founded? The international academic journal Journalism Practice recently published a study on the first two years of the Me Too NZ campaign by Massey University's journalism program leader, Dr James Hollings. He spoke to many of the reporters involved and found that instead of being gung-ho purveyors of sleaze and scuttlebutt, the team was significantly limited in what it could report and often had to go to painstaking lengths to bring its stories to publication. Reporters worked hard to balance the expectations of their sources with the limitations of New Zealand's strict defamation law and a culture of silence surrounding sexual harassment. Welcome, Ellie and James, to Media Watch. Thank you. Kia Thank you. Now, it's almost exactly two years since Me Too NZ launched on Stuff. Can you just remind us, Ellie, what was the spark for that campaign? Well, the Weinstein allegations uh, in the October previously had um, it had opened a window for women worldwide to have their voices heard, and I waited a bit and I saw that New Zealand women, while they were joining in online, um, didn't really have an opportunity to tell their stories on mass in bulk, and and it just seemed crazy to me the idea that we wouldn't have the same kind of problem with sexual harassment in New Zealand workplaces that everybody else has all around the world. Um, funnily enough, the criticism that was um, that was pointed at us after we launched, um, some of it uh, seemed to question that as if New Zealand was this magical unicorn of a place that um, that had no sexual harassment or didn't have a problem or wasn't likely to have a problem. Yeah, bastion free of sexual harassment. But obviously, actually, while you were launching, I think it was before you were launching, there was uh, sexual harassment uh, allegations about Russell McVeigh that was swirling. So you were kind of launching in the middle of that. That was the final straw for me, if you like. I'd been thinking about it over the summer. Um, I had been encouraged by colleagues and mentors in Australia to do a similar investigation to one that was taking place over there. And uh, and I was a bit, you know, doubtful of my own ability to pull this off, actually. And then when um, Newsroom published the Russell McVeigh story, it just made up my mind in an instant. And, uh, and I pitched it to Sinead Boucher at Stuff, who immediately said yes, with no boundaries, really. So... Mm. Uh, it was one of those elevator pitch moments, and uh, that you know you've got where you've got thirty seconds to <laughs> to tell them what you want, and she said yes. So, this, well, that's interesting. They were so quick about it. I guess it was just this incredible worldwide global story at the time, but it wasn't popular with everyone. 
Uh, I think Mike Hosking accused it of, of you of running a tasteless, tacky campaign. Al Nisbet sort of said that it was a witch hunt. Now, how was it actually getting those criticisms in the early going? Did you sort of start off on the defensive? Oh, I just thought those were ill thought out and ridiculous, so they didn't affect me much. You know, Mike Hosking, he said we were likely to be concentrating on bum pinching as if that's not assault. That's assault. Uh, so I think there was a lack of understanding among some commentators, male and female, as to what sexual harassment actually looks like. And and I saw that as part of our job, actually, right from the start, to make it crystal clear to New Zealanders, including them, what sexual harassment actually looks like. Now, we're two years into the campaign, post that criticism. James, you've studied the campaign pretty intently, and you've written a paper about it for Massey. Now, how accurate would you say Hosking and this bit were? I don't think there's any real credence to their claims or their concerns, if you like. I mean, fair enough that they raised them. I mean, but talking to the journalists who worked on the campaign, it was very scrupulous. I mean, they all raised that issue spontaneously. They were quite defensive about it, if you like. They wanted to show that they hadn't done a witch hunt. And they, in the way they proceeded and to investigate each claim and quite thoroughly or very thoroughly um, before publishing anything I think they really put the lie to those claims um, completely Yeah it's it's such an interesting thing because you did also have this incredible duty of care to these survivors in, in a way that you might not have when you're reporting other types of stories so maybe first of all can you talk about exactly how you approached that relationship with the survivors to make it easier for them, recounting what's probably, in most cases, or many cases, the worst moment of their lives? Uh, Yes. Every survivor that gets in touch with me, uh, in our first conversation, I spend some time talking to them about the process, the reporting process, uh, and how difficult it can be and how we um, want to make sure that we re-traumatise them as little as possible. Because tell, for a survivor telling their story over and over again, which you have to do when you're in the middle of a, a stringent journalistic investigation, you know, reporters have to come back to you and recheck and recheck. It's important that they know what they're in for right up front. Um, it's also it was important for them to have a good think about what they were expecting from the process, um, because some people had a or some people came to us almost forgetting that we were journalists. You know, some women just wanted to tell their story that they'd held, you know, in the deepest part of their soul for twenty years. And told no one about, and they just wanted to tell somebody. And you know, you had to gently, gently remind them that we were what we were there for. You know, um, so that was important for the survivors to have a think about what they wanted from the process, uh, and to um, you know, to explain to them how real it could get at the end. For example, with the higher profile uh, stories we've worked on. Um, the survivors needed to be ready to testify in a defamation trial. And sometimes that includes signing an affidavit, um, that they would do so. So, I mean, you did have this duty of care. You were quite intentional about protecting survivors. But then, James, you also mentioned that everyone that you spoke to was really weary of this witch hunt criticism. How did you balance that? How did you apply real objective journalistic standards to this while maintaining 
a duty of care to the survivors? Well, the defamation law in New Zealand um, means we must. You know, I, I have regular contact with our defamation lawyer, uh, and he often sends me and the team back to square one <laughs> on stories, and we, you know, have to redo stuff until it reaches a, a publishable level, legally and journalistically. Um, so you almost have to be more stringent on these stories than you might on other stories. Yeah. So is that something that you sort of verified through your report, James, that, that everything was really, uh, I guess, rigorously tested before getting to publication? Uh, yeah. Well, as Ali says, um, defamation law in New Zealand is really draconian, effectively. I think it's one of the great shames about New Zealand at the moment is the stranglehold that some aspects of the, of the legal culture we have have on journalism. Um, you mentioned defamation law and the high, ridiculously high standard that that has to be that stories have to be held to. So we, that's a, I think still a big problem in New Zealand, and it's came through in these in these stories is that journalists couldn't just report on a case in someone's story uh, without literally having to prove to a, a legal standard that this was this was true, um, and. I think that's too bar, too high a bar to cross, and it's certainly not a bar that we hold our politicians to in the way that defamation law works. Yeah, and can we so, separate those mm. things out? So, like, how how much of a, a hindrance was defamation law to this campaign, or has it been? It's forced us to move in a different direction. So um, we, when we started, probably imagined uh, being able to break a number of big stories where the perpetrators were named. And that hasn't been the case. Uh, instead, we've been able to uh, thoroughly examine some of the overarching issues with sexual harassment, which I think actually in the end, even though it wasn't necessarily planned like that, is, has been a good thing because we've been able to really dig into the systemic problems. Um, NDAs is one of them, for yeah. example. And that's the second one, isn't it? Because you, 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 I think the report mentions it too. You know, you uncovered what is called a culture of secrecy around sexual harassment and NDAs is part of that, right? So so our organisation is essentially are, covering up. There are several extremely high-profile um, people, perpetrators, uh, whose stories we haven't been able to run because of non-disclosure agreements. Now, I need to point out that sometimes non-disclosure agreements are all, or the payment that goes along with are all a survivor is likely to get as a result out of their complaint. But there is absolutely no doubt that it is harmful to that they are harmful to society because they allow uh, a perpetrator who sometimes um, is guilty of m multiple uh, victimizations. It allows them to stay in the workplace and nobody is any the wiser and they can go on to victimise other people. So I think one of the most uh, sort of mind-boggling ones of these that you came across was actually the Law Society, which <laughs> got a super injunction to stop you publishing sexual harassment, a story about sexual harassment there. About a, a we, think it was the, we think it was the first one in New Zealand. This one was a, an email that was uh, sent in error to a young law student uh, and from the Law Society and it contained details of sexual harassment by a member 
a lawyer. Uh, so it was it was a mistake, and the law society got a an injunction, not only on the publication of what was in the email, um, so the you know so the young lawyer couldn't publish it or talk about it, um, but they got the super injunction part. Sorry, this is complicated, but the super injunction part meant. Uh, the existence of the original injunction couldn't even be mentioned. So, um, yeah, and we fought for months to have that overturned. And you did? Yes, we did. There's actually something that, James, you mentioned in your report, which is that this campaign also took a real toll on journalists and the journalists who reported these stories. Now, can you go into that a little bit? What did they tell you? Um, well, one of them particularly mentioned that you know, we put a lot of emphasis in the campaign on looking after the survivors, but there was nothing in place for us with the words used. Um, so this is not an uncommon story in journalism, that journalists are effectively often first responders to disasters, crises. They see a lot of the sort of things that ambulance staff, police and so on see. They talk to people who are ter- in terrible moments of their lives, and that has a, a secondary sort of traumatisation effect, if you like. But for some of these journalists as well um, who had experienced some kind of abuse themselves in their in their, in their lives, doing stories about this brought up stuff for them and I guess the point was made. It wasn't too strongly made, I don't think, but they just wanted to make the point that maybe we should have had a little bit more in place for us during the course of this and one of them particularly had to pause and really take some time out. So... I think it really just speaks to the fact that this is very, this is difficult, demanding journalism. What what is being done here, and it's a huge credit to Ellie and her team what they've done in this in this in this campaign. I think it's it's not easy. Um, it's hard to prove some of this sort of stuff. Very hard to prove. Often they're talking about stuff that's happened years ago. Um, you've got often powerful people ready to wave a stick at you if you get the slightest thing wrong, which is fair enough, of course. But um, so. It's, it's a demanding form of form of journalism, particularly. I think you mentioned mm. that one one journalist needed counselling after they found themselves becoming affected by their work. Is that mm. something that stuff could have offered, sort of counselling sessions to people who needed it? That was offered. Right. So um, I can only talk from my perspective, and I would always um, back members of my team who felt um, that way. I'm not, you know, decrying that point of view at all um, I personally didn't feel like that and I'm still uh, I mean I have different team members now um, and we're still at it you know I'm still at it every day um, I actually can, if I can talk personally for a moment this is going to sound a bit weird I found it healing um, I found having had my own um, instances of sexual abuse in my childhood um, through the hundreds of women that I've talked to in the last two years, I was finally able to reconcile with myself that it wasn't my fault, if you see what I mean. Because I've spent a lot of time, many, many hours, telling them, hundreds of them, this was not your fault. Um, most people who have been um, harassed or abused in some way feel some self-blame. Uh, and it, and it, it made that connection for me that I, I no longer need to to blame myself in any way, on any level. Where to from here? 
Where to from here? Uh, I would still, uh, I see things shifting. For example, um, I understand that there is work currently underway in within the ministries and um, government organisations that are charged with um, recording and addressing sexual harassment. The, the wheels are finally starting to move. I can't really say much more than that, but... Um, Will, is there a chance that any of those, you know, big, high, more high-profile NDAs, any of those stories will get published, for instance? I live in hope. There's a couple of very big stories where, uh, well, there's a couple of really big stories that are moving through the courts, for example. Um, in two cases, we have managed to support survivors to lay criminal charges, and those trials will be coming up this year. There is, you know, and all of that, of course, is covered by suppression at the moment, but um, it will come out, hopefully, eventually, once suppression is lifted. Um, There are some major stories um, involving big names where the survivors are still considering whether they want to go public. And that is a big decision for them to make. You know, it is to become that person that puts their name and image out there making accusations against a a public figure in a, a society as small as New Zealand, um, that's a big deal. Um, and that's one of the things, the size of our our workforce in New Zealand has been one of the, the other things that has held us back, if you like, um, because people just um, don't trust that they'll be able to work after they make these public accusations. Ellie and James, can we talk very briefly about Matt Nippet's story from the weekend, which revealed that TVNZ's male presenters earn on average 44000 more than their female presenters. Uh, Ellie, I think you have some personal experience of this. I do. I, I wouldn't mind if James would kind of... Set out the landscape first before I talk about my personal experiences. Yeah, James. So you've you've surveyed journalists' pay in New Zealand, and what did you find out about female versus male pay? Well, not just pay. We conducted what's part of part of a world survey of journalists, and it's very rigorously done. We did our, we did the last survey in 2015, um, and this looks at journalists throughout New Zealand, and we have a proper statistical sample, and we did a proper analysis of various factors, including pay and controlling for all sorts of things like location, experience, age. And the answers were quite clear that women journalists are paid less than their male counterparts for any given um, level of experience or age or or location where they're working. So it's not really a surprise to see that at TV New Zealand this same trend is uh, played out, that they are paying their women journalists less. And I have to say that... uh, Given that we've had um, as many or more female journalists than male journalists in the workforce for at least 15 years now, um, it's long past the time where there might be any kind of statistical, let alone moral justification for that being the case. Yeah, were you surprised, Ellie? No, I wasn't surprised because I have personal experience of it, as you've said. Um, I think the justification with telly has always, with television, has always been that that television presenting is somehow um, a unique and separate thing, and therefore not beholden to any of the normal. Um, 
standards or, or laws around um, around pay equality. So you get the situation, as I did in 2004, where I was um, a male presenter was sacked and on the same day I was asked to take over his job starting the next day. And I said, yes, absolutely, I'll do that job. Um, just give me what he was earning. And the head of news laughed. And I, I think, well, I don't know how much less I earned, but I suspect it was several hundred thousand dollars less than the previous incumbent the day before for the same job was earning. So, and people have said to me, because I've, I've talked about this publicly on a number of occasions, and people have said to me, oh, well, that's because he was a more popular presenter or he was more experienced than you or, you know, TV's, presenting is different for reasons. Um, not exactly true. My CV was stronger than his at the time. I had more experience. I had international experience uh, of solo presenting, of these kinds of shows, etc., etc. So there, there are always excuses that are thrown at television presenters. I don't know whether how much longer those excuses will be able to stack up. Is it, um, yeah, and is I'm it, glad to see this this information come out, actually. I wonder how much of it is a chicken or the egg situation as well, where male presenters are kind of boosted more and presented as stars more and, and are, are seen as the norm more, and then they get uh, pay, paid more and, and justify that, that That's how they justify the pay differential as well. I think that you'd have to factor in, and I'm not pinpointing this as the only cause because pay equality and pay equity are, are difficult, um, complex issues. Um, but I think you would have to factor in, surely, the fact that at TVNZ there has not been a permanent head of news who's been a, fe- a female, a woman, um, there was an interim one back in the early 2000s, I think, a woman from the BBC who was there in a holding position for a few months. Um, but as far as I know, there has never been a woman um, heading up news and current affairs at TVNZ. There's been a, a succession of men going back. Well, I was there 19 years and I saw 10 head of news and current affairs come and go. Um, and those are the people that are making these decisions, you know, in the first instance at I will also point out that the salaries of presenters at the level that the Herald was talking about on Sunday, they all have to go to the board. Right. So, so um, the board's approving all of those, mm-hmm. and they're approving the pay differentials, and they know the identities. Well, they of must people. be. Yeah. Because, you know, newsrooms have tend to be run by males and white males generally, um, there's a kind of a narrow sort of idea of what news is and news values are which has been come through. And you, you see the example we've been talking about earlier with Me Too. When you get a strong woman journalist like Ali in, in a position where they can, and a strong woman, former journalist like Sinead Boucher running stuff, who can see that a campaign like Me Too might actually, well, as well as being a morally a good idea, but actually it's potentially, it's had great readership. And so it's actually a commercially good decision to have broaden your range of what who is making news decisions, and not just women, I might add, but but um, minorities as well. So it's not just about a, doing the right thing, but it also makes business sense as well, I would say. Yeah, mm. I should have mentioned that before. Um, James's um, research showed that um, our Me Too stories had between five and, and 19 times more readership than the average story on stuff. So that was well borne out. 
Yeah, and That's also contributed to Stuff Winning Best News website, at, I think, The Voyages in 2018. Mm. Uh, I, just lastly, I guess it must be galling a little bit for, for someone like you, Ellie, or, or uh, uh, any other journalist who's doing stuff like your Me Too campaign and talking about you know gender discrimination and the different ways that women are treated to see that actually in your own industry there are these discrepancies as well. Oh, no, it doesn't surprise me at all. Oh, sorry, it um, must be galling. Oh, galling. Oh, yes, of course, but I've always been annoyed at the way women have been treated in newsrooms. And remember, my experience in newsrooms goes back to the 1980s. So, and the 80s and 90s were particularly um, uh, rugged, if I can use that word, at times to be a woman journalist in a newsroom. Uh, I mean, obviously things have improved in, in terms of day-to-day work um, and the way you are treated and the, um, you know, the, the the newsrooms are more woke now and, and thank God for that. Um, but obviously the there are structural issues that, um, that the Herald's uh, article on Sunday um, has shown one of them um, that still need to be addressed. I mean, if you have... Um, if you have a man and a woman presenting a program, and I'm talking about the news and I'm talking about the current affairs programs, who are doing the same job, there is no reason why those two people should be paid different amounts. I mean, is there? I suspect that um, that if TVNZ was going to properly um, defend their position they would uh, say that it's all to do with the amount of um, advertising revenue that uh, you can prove that a person brings in or, you know, that they'd try and use the commercial imperative as a way to, to justify the differences because how else can you justify that? Yeah, well, I guess, James, you balanced for those sorts of things, didn't you, with your study, and you found that there was still this discrepancy there. Well, we didn't actually look at how much someone may bring in as advertising that's beyond our scope, but I mean, there is no argument, honestly. We're, we're, we're well past this. I mean, and it's kind of frankly ludicrous that, that they are trying to justify or there is any claim justification for paying men more than women for the, you know, for a, a given job, really. Hey, thank you very much, both of you, for coming to the Media Watch Castle. Thanks, Hayden. Thanks, Aidan. That was Ali Moore, executive producer at Stuff and the leader of its Me Too campaign, which was launched two years ago this week. And there she was talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell, who also spoke to Massey University professor of journalism James Hollings, the author of an analysis of the campaign called It Does Become Personal, Lessons from a News Organisation's Me Too campaign. And that was published recently in an international journal called Journalism Practice.